Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to Wilderness Wanderings, the book of Numbers. Now, I know that's not normally how I start these things. I usually like, hi, welcome to the book of Numbers. This is our study. And that's what we're doing. But I was just reading through and I was thinking about chapter three that we're going to be studying the book of Numbers today. And my mind was drawn back to a wonderful time in my childhood that I, I truly enjoyed. We as a family would often go to the circus. And whether or not you go to the circus or not, well, nobody does anymore because they've been closed down. But we went to the circus every year when it would come to Chicago. And I remember as a child loving that opportunity. We spent time as a family. It was an all-day event. We would go down to the city and we would, we would spend that time as a family enjoying the circus. In fact, it came to the point that I loved the circus so much, I started to read on different things like clown college. I wondered, you know, maybe God had just gifted me to be a clown. My wife would say yes. You might even say yes. But I, I loved reading about the clown college. I'm one of those people who's not really creeped out by clowns. You might be, so I'll change the picture real quick in case you are. I, I loved reading about the circus, knowing about them, and studying. In fact, recently, a couple years ago, there was a documentary that came out uh, about the circus. And so I watched this just trying to learn about how did the circus come to be? How did the different circuses in America take place? But one of the things that really impressed me about the circus was how quickly the big top and all the sideshows, everything could be set up and how it could be done. And just that the circus would roll into town in the middle of the night. And by the afternoon, they're running a parade and bringing everybody out for that show in order to tear it all down and to go to the next town. And they would just keep doing that. But how did they do something so extraordinary in such a short amount of time? When I was watching that documentary, one of the individuals said, everybody from the oldest to the youngest had a job to do. They knew their job and they did their job. If they did not do their job, it caused havoc on everybody else. And I was thinking about that in relationship to the book of Numbers, especially those first couple chapters where God is telling the children of Israel, this is what you're going to do. This is your responsibility. And this is how you're going to march. This is what you're going to do in your encampment and all these things. Now, I'm not comparing well, I am a little bit, the, the tabernacle and everything to a circus. But it could have very much looked like a circus if there was not organization. They needed organization. They had organization. In fact, the need for organization of the people gave the reason for having multiple censuses. God understood that these, these individuals needed to know what they were going to do, where they were going to, to be, and how they were supposed to fit into the bigger picture. I mean, when you look at all of the things, all of the people encamped around the tabernacle, all the people and their different tribes and then their different clans and the different camps, they needed to know when to move, where to go. And that's what we had in chapters 1 and 2, where you had 11 of the 12 tribes were going to be talked about in two chapters. But then you get to chapters 3 and 4, and only one tribe is going to be talked about. And then even talking about that one tribe, we're going to narrow in and talk about one family. And God had a specific and special task for this tribe. Now, the tribe of Levi, or the Levites, they were, they were this tribe. And as you look at it, you might ask, well, what was it about the tribe of Levi? Why did they have a special status? Or why did they, why were they exempt 
from the military census of chapters 1 and 2. And in order to understand that, we need to take our Bibles and go back to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, you already, you already know the story that's going to come out because you see the picture there on the screen. The story of the golden calf and how as Moses is up on Mount Sinai, they are, the children of Israel are wondering what's happened to Moses and Aaron and the others, they start to fashion an image. They say they're going to worship Jehovah, but they, they create this golden calf. And when Moses hears about it, Moses and Joshua come down off the mountain. They hear the sounds as of war, and they hear the people singing and worshiping to this false, false deity, this false idol. And as they're doing that, Moses is irate, and we know, we know all the things that happen, but do you ever catch what happens at the end? At the end of the story, there's a question that Moses is going to ask. Moses is going to ask in uh, 32 verse 26, he's going to say, as he stood there at the gate of the camp, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And so he asks, who's, who's going to devote themselves to God? Who's going to come forth and truly declare themselves on God's side? And I, I, I believe also, as I was reading, this is an aspect of repentance because it's going to talk about the Levites, all the sons of Levi coming to him. That includes Aaron. Aaron was one of the ones who was leading in this. There seems to be an aspect of repentance where, all right, did you, you, you've been worshiping this false, but you've made this covenant with Jehovah that you're not going to worship a false God, that you're going to be in a relationship with him, and now you have strayed off. And yet these individuals, especially the tribe of Levi, it says, all of them rally to Moses, and then God's justice is going to be enacted. Because they have violated the holiness of God. They have sinned against God. And at this point, they're going to rally to God. And they're going to slay these false worshipers and idolaters. And as this happens, 3,000 individuals in that camp. Now, that seems like a lot. And it is a lot of people. But it's, it's really only 0.05% of the entire population of, of the children of Israel. But it's still a significant number. And it's a significant account in the word of God reminding us that we, we should not be false worshipers. We should not be idolaters. We should not be exalting anything above God. God is to be and have the supremacy and the priority in our life. Well, this, it reminds me too that this early sin, it does have extreme consequences. Again, we talked last week about Nadab and Abihu. And here, early sin on is going to be dealt with extremely to, to show the people and to remind them that, hey, God is serious about sin. And God is serious about dealing with it soon because if we let sin linger, it becomes easier and easier and it just consumes us and takes us down and it will hurt us and it destroys. And so the, the, the Levites here are going to be blessed by God. In fact, as it keeps going a little bit later, I have 26 up there, but if you go down to verse 29 in the text, it says, for Moses had said, consecrate yourself. He says this to the Levites, consecrate yourself today to the Lord, or literally today you have been set apart to me. You are given to me is what he says. And why does he say that he's doing that? Every man, every son, and all of his brothers, that he may, that God may bestow upon you a blessing this day. What is that blessing going to be? What is it going to be that as they're separated and set apart to God, God is going to enact that in Numbers chapter 3, where we see that the Levites are going to be set apart, not for military service, but for something completely different. 
In fact, if you, you do a study on the, the tribe of Levi, it's really interesting the change in heart attitude and uh, the way that they are. When you start with their great-grandfather, Levi, and you look at how Levi was, Levi chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 34, I believe it is, he and his brother Simeon, after their sister Dinah was, was uh, taken advantage of by Shechem, they go in and their bloodthirst is great and they, they allow their anger and their indignation to go in and they, they slay the, those people. In fact, when Jacob is going to bless Levi, he doesn't give him a positive blessing. He just says, you're pretty violent. You're pretty uh, revengeful, like bloodthirsty type of individual. He doesn't give them that, that positive. But by the time we start to see here in Exodus 32, their bloodthirst is a bloodthirst for righteousness. It really becomes not a bloodthirst, but rather a thirst, a hunger for righteousness. And the Levites, they set themselves apart. And because they set themselves apart, God is going to take the Levites and he's going to take them and say, you fought for and you protected the righteousness and the holiness of God at the base of Mount Sinai. And because you did that, therefore you are going to be exempt from the military duties, but you're going to be given a greater cause, the protection of and the ministry around the tabernacle. And that's where we pick up in chapter three. As we go to chapter 3 in our study, Numbers chapter 3, we, we remember last time, we, we talked about, as the chapter begins, we have Aaron, we have his sons that are going to be there. And as they're, they're there, his four sons, two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, are, are going to be killed because they offer strange fire before the Lord. We looked at that out of Leviticus 10. That concept, or that that situation is seared upon the minds of all the Levites. They remember this. They wouldn't have forgot it. You take a tragic death. If we had a tragic death, a quick and severe and extreme tragic death in our midst, in our church, we don't forget that overnight. And that's what's happening here. They remember their brother, their cousin, their nephew, their fellow tribesmen, being consumed by the fire of God because they offered strange fire. And as we talked about it last time, God must be approached as holy. God must be acknowledged as the just judge. And we have a responsibility. God's people must accept that responsibility to represent him as holy and just. So as we walk into the next part of chapter 3, verses 5 and following, we're going to see that the children of Levi, the tribe, they know that no matter what they are given, whatever small task it may be or large task it may be, they are to do it as unto the Lord. They are consecrated, they are set apart to him, and they must acknowledge him as holy and as just and represent him correctly. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 5, where we start to see this begin to unfold. We're going to have the first census. Now, this year is our census here in America, and we see all these commercials and all these ads, you know, count me in, count me, remember me. And it's all about the numbering and the counting. And we see it, it's for political reasons, it's for drawing of uh, districts, it's for uh, who's going to get financial aid and reward and money and all, and all those things. But when we talk about the census here, it's not 
the same idea. Yes, there is a counting. Yes, there is a numbering. But it's important to remember that a census is not simply to count the people, but it's also to give instruction and information to the people as well. God uses these times to instruct Moses, and then Moses uses those census moments to instruct the leaders and the other people so that they can go out and instruct the next. Chapter 3 is not simply about what to do, but it is also giving us a perspective, a rationale for what is happening. Think about it this way. You take a puzzle. We, we enjoy doing puzzles as a family. In fact, we had one puzzle that we really liked, and Sharon and I started putting it together one night. And the kids were helping us, and, and they looked and said, oh, we'll, we'll do the rest tomorrow. Well, Sharon and I got so engrossed into it, we, we stayed up till one or two in the morning, finished the puzzle. The next morning, we're all excited, and then the kids were like, but we thought we were going to help with this. And we missed the big picture that, hey, this was about all of us doing something together and enjoying that. Well, the census is going to help the individuals in the tribes to know what they're there for, to know their purpose, to know their part. Even in chapter three, understanding why, well, why don't our fellow Levites have to go fight with us? Why are they just caring? Why do they get the special treatment? Why do they get to touch the holy things of God or to carry them? Why, why them and not us? And chapter three helps us to understand that. It gives us the bigger picture. It helps everybody in the tribe and in the nation to know their part, to look at the one little puzzle piece and then see how does this connect? But then you start connecting with other pieces and you see the picture start to grow until you start to see the big picture. I think it's a great principle for leadership, a great principle for businesses, for our church, even for families, helping individuals understand how they fit in how they, what their purpose is, how their ministry is so vital and integral to the bigger picture of the church, to their business, to their corporation. When people understand their purpose, they understand how they're being integrated, how their job is vital. They work harder. They desire to serve more because they understand that, hey, this isn't just something that they're giving me as busy work. This is important. And so Numbers chapter 3 gives us that census. So what happens in this, these censuses? It's a really hard word to say. There's a couple hard words to say. Censuses is one of Wow, I just put too many S's on. Censuses is hard to say. But in these censuses, there's going to be two in chapters 3 and 4. And this is where it gets a little confusing at times. Because you're going to see two main censuses, but there's going to be three countings. And you're saying, well, are there three censuses? Are there two censuses? The first census in chapter 3, and that's all we're going to look at in this session. Chapter 3 is done in two parts. There's going to be the first part that we're going to find in verse 15, where Moses is told, Number the children of Levi after their house of their fathers, by their families, every male from a month old and upward, you shall number them. So that's the first part. You're going to look at Moses. I want you to go and I want you to number all of the firstborn male or all of the males one month old and older. All of the males. And so what happens is, is in the next verses, 15 through about 34 or so, you're going to see that the three main families in the tribe of Levi, there's the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarite. See, there's that other word that's going to be really hard to say. That's often why I'll say the clan of Gershon or the clan of Kohath or the clan of Merari. That's a lot easier to say. 
But it gives, it gives their numbers. In, in verse 22, you're going to see uh, for the Gershonites, there's about, there's not about, there's 7,500. And where are they going to be camped? They're going to be camped on the west side. Then you go with Kohath, the Kohathites, at verse 28, you're going to see that there uh, were 8,600, the King James says. Uh, and they're going to be on the south side. And then you're going to have the clan of Merari, which they're going to be uh, in verse 34. You're going to see in verse 34 that their number was 6,200. And they're going to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And so remember, the Levites are stationed all around the tabernacle. But now you can start to see where those different uh, Levites were. It makes complete sense, doesn't it? A God of order, a God of design. He wants everybody to know where they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be doing. He even tells, he just doesn't say Levites camp wherever you want around the tabernacle. He gives them specific places. He says, by your families, you're going to. So the Merari on the north, Gershon in the, the west, and Kohath on the, the, the south. And even though Moses and Aaron and the priests are all members of the Kohath tribe or clan, excuse me, they're, they're going to be given a special area on the east side of the tabernacle to camp there. And so everybody is given their place as to where they're going to camp and the numbers. Now, as we talk about this census, the census that occurs in chapter 3, there's a second part to the census. And you find that down in verse number 40. Verse 40, Moses is then told, Number all the firstborn of all the males of the children of Israel from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. So now there, now Moses has said, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses has been told, I want you to go through the firstborn of all of the children of Israel, and I want you to, to number them. Now, there's going to be a problem with this, this whole census here that, that arises. It's not a big problem. It's just something I want to draw your attention to. Uh, and it's in regard to the, the first numbers that, that were given. We'll come back to those, the numbers in ver, uh, verse 40 in a second. If you were going to take the clan of Merari and Kohath and uh, Gershon, and you took their totals that are given in uh, verse 22, verse 28, and uh, verse 34, and you did the math and you added them up, you're going to take the 7,500, the 8,600, the 6,200. You're going to end up with 22,300. But when you go down to verse number 39, right before that verse 40, verse 39, the number that is given in the text is 22,000. So is there an error in the Bible? Because when you add up the numbers, and I know my math's not at my strong suit. But that's a pretty straightforward addition problem. There's, there's, a, there's a discrepancy seeming here. Now, don't, when we look at the inspiration of Scripture, when this was written by Moses, it was accurate 100%. The numbers were there. When, there, when a copy is made, there are the potentials of a copy of a copy of a copy having a scribal uh, difference. And that's, that's what most commentators, most scholars believe happened here. In fact, in verse 28, where you have the clan of uh, Kohath, it says in the King James. Now, if you have a different version that you're reading from, every other version is going to have 8,300. The King James still has, or has 8,600. And all the differences is one Hebrew letter. 
And so most scholars have, have come to the conclusion as you look at the scripture, you look at the evidence, you look at all of that, they hold to the idea that a letter in the copying was added and it changed the number from 8,300 to 8,600. And if you, if you do change it back to 8,300, and that's what I have in my Bible, and I would just encourage you to write it down in yours at verse uh, 28, that it's 8,300 for the tribe of Koath. It brings the numbers then into harmony, especially with verse 39, where you have the 22,000. And so the census in the second part, you're going to have 22,000 of, uh, of these males in the tribe of Levi from one month uh, upward. And then you're going to take the verse 40, you're going to number all of the male children of Israel from one month upward and take their names. Now, if you start doing just in your head math, you're like, wait, there's 2.5 million people. There were 600,000 of these individuals that were in the, in the, the standing army. How are there only 22,000, uh, 22,273, uh, firstborns? Well, again, most commentators, as we look through and we understand and we read, that is, that is the number that they believe are the firstborn since Exodus chapter 13 and 14 when they were told that they had to consecrate the firstborn. And when you take those numbers. But either way, we know that according to Scripture, that is the, those are the numbers that are given here. And this, the, the number that's taken in chapter or verse 43, it says the firstborn males numbered by their names from a month old and upward of their number of them were 22,000. 200, three score and 13, or 2,273. I think I just got my number backwards, but um, I'll, I'll look that up here in a second and give that to you. Uh, as you as you look at those numbers, though, what what is going to happen? 2,273, I got it right. Hey, every once in a while, get it right. But all of that, all those senses are taking place, and we look and say, okay, what, what's all going on? Great, we got a bunch of numbering again. What do we learn from these Levitical censuses? And so I've entitled this section like the idea of Levitical lessons for the present priesthood. We are called a royal priesthood. We are, we are as New Testament believers, priests. Now, we're not going to have the same dynamics as the Levites and the priests of the Old Testament. But there's some really good lessons for us to learn. And so what can we learn as we look through this, this text a little bit closer and say, all right, what, what's here for us? First of all, as we look in verses 5 and 6, we're going to see that the Levites are presented as an offering to the high priest. They're given, verse, verse 5 says, Bring the tribe of Levi. This is the Lord speaking to Moses and then Moses to the people. Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest that they may minister unto, the, unto him. The, the word present here has the idea of being given as an offering. Given to Aaron, the high priest, it's the term here, it's, it's giving what they don't have to give. It's not saying, all right, we got to give them. To. No, this is God giving those who have been set apart to him. They, he is giving them and saying, Moses, give this tribe to Aaron as an offering, something for a specific purpose. They are going to be his. In fact, the term is something that is often used with the idea of presenting an inferior to a superior. Now, we don't like those terms. We don't like to think of, oh, I might be inferior to somebody or they might be superior. 
But there is this dynamic where there are people in authority over us. And in this case, the Levites are the inferior. They're the subordinate to the high priest. So in other words, Aaron's going to call the shots. The priests are going to be the one in charge. As Aaron trickles down the authority to the Levites, then they're going to be at the bidding or the behest of the high priest. As you go a little bit further in seven verses 7 through 10, as we look, the Levites are to serve at the behest of the high priest. So they're given, what is their purpose? Why are they given? Verse 7, it says, And they shall keep his charge, talking about the, the high priest, and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle, of the congregation, of the charge of Israel, the children of Israel, to do the service of the tabernacle. And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given unto him out of the children of Israel. And so these individuals are going to be given to the priest to serve at the priest's will, at his wishes. He is going to establish, and we'll see that in chapter 4, that God is going to establish in Aaron as well, and then his sons to give authority and direction to the Levites. They're going to minister to the high priest. He's going to be the one to set the agenda. That's important for us to remember as we, as we finish. The high priest sets the agenda. Not the Levites to the high priest, but the high priest to the Levites. They're going to be on guard duty. The idea of ministering or serving the tabernacle, it's not just doing the work. There's two different dynamics here. There's a guard duty. They are to protect the righteousness and the holiness, just like they did at the base of Mount Sinai. They're to protect the righteousness and the holiness of God. They are not to let strangers come to the, uh, to the tabernacle. They are set in between all of the other tribes and the tabernacle. They are to do their job. When they move the tabernacle, they are to protect it. They are to guard it. They are the ones to not allow anybody to come too, too close to the holy instruments of God as the tabernacle is even being moved. They are to keep the furnishings when they're on the move. They, when they're in the tabernacle, the priests are dealing with the holy instruments, the altar, the table, the, the lampstand, the, the Ark of the Covenant. The priests are dealing with that. But when it's on the move, the Levites are going to be the ones who are carrying it. The Levites are going to be the ones who are guarding it. They have this holy service unto God that they're giving. Their service, it's to, to do the work of the tabernacle as well. So there's the guard duty, but there's also the other concept that's given at the end of verse, uh, verse 8, to do the service of the tabernacle. They're there to do some of the, the, what we might say, the menial tasks, the cleaning up, the moving of items, the helping, the protecting, the, the guarding of the uh, tabernacle, whatever the priests would have them to do, they served. And so the Levites are a picture here to serve. They're given to serve the priests. The Levites are a substitution for the firstborn sons of Israel. Again, remembering how do we fit into the big picture? Why are they special? What is it about them? They've become a substitution for the firstborn sons of Israel. Look down at chapter uh, 3, verse 11. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, And I, have, I behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, instead of, or in place of, as a substitution for, 
all the firstborns that open up the matrix of the, among the children, that's someone, a child, firstborn child who's been born. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine. God definitively declares that this tribe is mine. They will do my bidding, and I am the one who is giving them to Aaron in order to serve the tabernacle, in order to serve the priests, and ultimately to serve the congregation as they protect the congregation from coming too close, for tritely going and not approaching God as holy, as they protect them so they don't see the congregation dying. They're serving so many different facets and dynamics, different people. But God says they are mine. In verse 12, verse 13, because all the firstborn are mine. For on that day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me, I sanctified to me, I set them apart to me, all the firstborn sons of Israel, both man and beast, mine shall they be. I am the Lord. So God is going to look and he's going to say, instead of that idea of substitution, he says the firstborn are mine. You can even go back into Exodus chapters 13, 22, uh, 34 as well, where God is going to declare the firstborn are mine. When he, when the, the death angel went in at that 10th plague and they were, re, they were atoned for by the blood over the doorposts. And as the, the, the firstborn was passed over, they were set apart. They, were, they became gods. They were redeemed unto him. And God says, I have spared them. They are mine. And now, as we come into this section here, God is going to say, instead of me taking every firstborn that are mine, that are rightfully mine, that I spared, that I redeemed from the death angel, from that last one, I am going to substitute them, and I am going to take this entire tribe And they, for the duration of this tribe's livelihood, they are going to be the ones who serve me, serve the tabernacle, serve the priest. And that's why it's going to have them numbered because we're going to see that there's still a little bit of, there's more firstborns among the 11 tribes than there were among men among the tribe of Levi. We'll see that here in a second. He says, I've set set them apart to me. I am the Lord. Really beautiful pictures here we're going to talk about in a second. But think about this concept. God says the ones that I have redeemed, the ones that the blood on the post, the blood of the the pure and innocent lamb, the ones that have been atoned for, their sins were paid for. They were covered. They have been redeemed. They have been sanctified. They have been set apart to me. What a beautiful picture of what happens at salvation. When somebody accepts Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ covers their sin, they have been redeemed. They have been bought back from their slavery of sin. They have been owned by God. They are set apart. We are now set apart, sanctified as holy ones, as saints unto God. Beautiful pictures that take place. When you're reading through Numbers, look to see Jesus Christ. He, and, and salvation, it is there throughout the text. And as we, as we go through, the Levites are going to be counted. And they're going to be given specific duties here, according to the, the passage. And this is the biggest length, about 20 verses or so, where you can get bogged down in the repetition. 
of what is happening. And this is where we find out the numbers, where they're going to be stationed, which we already talked about. But he also, Moses and God are going to give them their charge, their responsibilities, their general responsibilities. Aaron's going to give them their specifics. Eliezer and uh, Ithamar, the other priests, are going to give them their specifics in chapter 4 and beyond. But look at, look at what it says for the Gershonites, the clan of Gershon in verse 25. What are they going to be? Their charge is going to be when they are pitched behind the tabernacle on the west side, their charge, verse 25, in the tabernacle of the congregation shall be the tent, the covering, the hanging of the doors um, in the tabernacle. I put it this way, that their charges are going to be the curtains, the coverings, the cords, all, all those uh, linens that are around. You have in verse 31, you're going to have the charge to the Kohathites. Their responsibility is going to be for the holy instruments of God, the ark, the, the lampstand, the, the table of showbread, the altar, all of those things. They're going to be responsible on the move to carry them. When it's time to, to, to go, they're going to be the ones carrying them and looking over them. You're going to have the, the clan of Merari in verse 36. They're going to be responsible for the boards and the beams and the bars and the bolts. They're, they're, they're there to go pick them up and to make sure. Now think about this for a second. I don't know if you're like me, but if God said to me for the next 20 years of your life, my holy service that I want you to do is every time we move the tabernacle, you're going to pick up all the bolts, all the little pins. That's all you're going to do, and you're going to carry them to the next place. And then you're going to help put them back in. And that's what you're going to do. I thought about that and I was like, wait, my heart attitude would not have been very happy. I, I, I would like, that's just, that's so trivial. It's so small, God. And yet there is no small service for the sovereign. As we look at God and he calls us to do, you might say, oh, there's, there's too many little things. I, I don't know. What does God want you to be doing? How does God want you to serve? But they all knew their duties. God, a God of order, of perspective. He gave them to them. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. The Levites as well, as we go through the chapter, you look at verses 40 to 51. This is where that second part of the, the census picked up, and I left it off for a purpose. So as we look here, what, what was that second part of the census? What was it all about? They were to number the firstborn of all the male children of Israel, verse 40, from the other, the other 11 tribes, not the tribe of Levi, but it's part of this census with Levi. From one month old upward and take their numbers. And so they did that, and as they take the number, verse 43, you have 2,273. So what happens here is the firstborn uh, in the nation is 2,273, Again, uh, most hold that this is the number from the firstborn uh, command to consecrate the firstborn in Exodus chapter 13, verse 12. There were 22,000 Levites over the age of one month. So there's still a difference of 273 firstborn that belonged to God from the other, the other tribes. They had to be ransomed. They had to be paid for, redeemed. And so what happens is Moses, under, under direction of God, tells the other nations, you must pay the five shekel uh, tax or redemption price 
for these firstborn. And that, that amount of money was going to be given to the priests to care for the priests and allow them to use it in the ministry of, of the Lord. So that debt is going to be paid, and the payment of redemption is always a life for a life. And, and in this case here, they didn't have that. And so God says, okay, for the firstborn here, there was a life for a life, the Levite, one Levite for one firstborn, but there's more firstborn, so you're going to pay that difference in the, in the five shekel, shekel tax. The, the word that's used, the words that are used are re- words of redemption and ransom. It is that idea of paying money in order to free things or people that had come into possession of someone else. The firstborn were owed, they, they belonged to God. And they had to be redeemed. So the, whole, the, the Levites took the place of those, the other individuals, the money was given, and then that was given to the priests in order to make, thing, make sure everything is equitable and equal and that every life was, every firstborn was ransomed. So all of that happens in this chapter to make sure we're all set to go, to go forward. Now, the Levites, when I look at the Levites, I really think about the idea of they are a beautiful shadow of things to come, of theology in the future. You look at the Levites, and they give you this picture that as you start listening and you start thinking about your full biblical theology, there are terms and thoughts that really pop up. I I don't know if you remember. Do do you remember? Maybe you have them still. These types of silhouette pictures where an individual would get that side profile. As a kid, I called them the Alfred Hitchcock pictures, but that's what, that's what I called them. They were that idea that they would take the silhouette of an individual and they would etch it on to a, to a portrait. Now, if you look at that individual, I don't even know who those two are. I have no clue. They're just probably a general generic picture. But they're there for a reason. They give you a little bit of a, a glimpse of what these two looked like. But as you know more about an individual and you see their silhouette, you, you know who they are. For example, if I pop that up, most of you are going to look and go, oh, I know who that is. That's George Washington. Whether it's because you always look at a quarter or because we just know. We have a, we have a better knowledge of the man, of the individual. And so when we see the shadow of him or whether it's of this individual, of Abraham Lincoln, we, we have those pictures in our mind. And the more we know about them, the clearer the shadow becomes. We see a little bit more of who that individual is. The Levites are the same way. They're a shadow of things to come. They're a beautiful picture pointing forward. And what what silhouettes of theology do the Levites portray? How does it impact us? We can look at all those censuses and, okay, there's redemption and there's this happens and this happens and this is what they're supposed to do. But what truths are there? For us, how do we look at it and just not gloss over chapter 3 and say, okay, that's what they were supposed to do. All scripture is profitable for us, for me, for you. So how does this text impact us? Think about these silhouettes of theology from from the thoughts of the Levites. Service as a reasonable response to redemption of people. Service is, it should say, is a uh, reasonable response to the, rede- uh, the redemption of his people. Think about what has happened. God redeemed his people, and yet he substitutes this concept of substitution. He replaces with the Levites. He says, 
these individuals are redeemed, and those who are redeemed, the reasonable response is to serve me. We get that in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. I am not my own. I, if you are saved, if you're listening to this and you are a true child of God and you've asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and you are, you are a true, genuine child of God, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And this is in the text of our holy living, especially in regard to purity and impurity. And we are, we are not our own. We don't just have the, the whim to do whatever we want to do. This beautiful picture of substitution. God has replaced our sin nature, our, our sinfulness with his righteousness. I belong to him. And because I belong to him, my reasonable response is to serve him. Christ's life has been given, been given for our life. We belong to him. Our life, our will, our ways are to be set apart to be holy, to be sanctified for God. He is the one who owns us. And so therefore, I have to look and say, wait, if my reasonable response for the redemption of Christ, to, of my soul, he paid for my sins, he saved me, my reasonable response is to serve him. In fact, it goes even further. As you look at the, you look at the Levites, Service requires following after the desires of the high priest and God. You say, well, I don't, I don't have a high priest. That's not true. You don't serve under the Jewish high priest in the temple. But we do have a great high priest. We are about service. We are to serve. Ephesians 4, in fact, tells us that it is about the work of the ministry what are, we, what are we as pastors, we're to be doing, we're to train and to equip you, to prepare you to do the work of the ministry. What's interesting about that word for work of the ministry, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, to what it's called the Septuagint, the words that were used for the Levites' work of the tabernacle, same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 4 for doing the work of the ministry. It's about service. We don't ask you to serve because we just want to give you something busy to do. Service to God, to God's people, to God's body ought to be the natural outflowing of our gratitude for him redeeming us, for him setting us apart, for him making us holy. And so I want to serve. I want to prepare you to serve this body, this community, your family, to serve God. It's the same word as I just mentioned there. And I mentioned this phrase earlier, but remember that no service is too small. You might say, well, all I can do is just give a phone call to people. I can't tell you the numbers of times I've heard from people recently, just spoke with somebody yesterday, just talking with them, one of our seniors. They said it has been such an encouragement to receive phone calls from the staff, to receive phone calls from other church members, just to ask how I was doing. You say, that's all I can do. That's, that's not all you can, that's what you get to do. You might be somebody who comes in and you, you do yard work around the church building and nobody ever knows. They just notice that the yard looks really good. That's a huge act for God. It's service for him. 
Sometimes you're, you might be part of like some of the ministries that take place here at church that nobody sees or nobody notices. You know, I'm very thankful for the men who have been, and, and women who have been learning the, the audio and the video so we can have these, these live streams, so that we can have the uploading of services, so that we can have sound that we can hear when we're in the auditorium. Thankful for the nursery workers, for the, for the, the children's workers who've taught my kids songs, who've taught my kids lessons from the scriptures. No service is too small. But my question is, is this, not what are you doing, but if you're not, why not? Why would, we, why would we say our life is too busy to serve God? The reasonable response to our redemption is service. In fact, the Bible tells us that. As we look at the offering of our lives, the offering of the Levites' lives, to the high priest was, a, was noble, expected, and necessary. You say, well, what do you mean by that? They were about surrender. They had to go and say, we will submit to the high priest. We will do the high priest's bidding. Romans 12 gives us a great New Testament illustration of this. What are we supposed to be doing? What is based on all of the great theology of Romans and the, the saving power of Christ? What is our reasonable response? It is that we present our bodies ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable form of worship. It's what is it? It's, it's what in, in, my, in a mind's thought very simply is, it's what's expected. It's what makes sense. It is reasonable that we serve our God that we take what he has commanded and we do. What he has forbidden, we put aside. We strive to live holy for him. Say, well, again, the high priest idea. Remember Hebrews chapter four. We have a great high priest, a greater high priest than the Old Testament high priest. We have Jesus Christ, our interceder, our intercessor, our mediator, our high priest, the one who goes before the throne, the one who has provided the blood on the mercy seat to cover our sins. He is the one who gives us the commands. He is the one who we do his bidding at his behest. He sets the agendas, not me, not you. We follow after our high priest. Wonderful pictures from the Levites. What they were to be about, about service. They were a substitute. They took the place of. They were the ones who redeemed, and we are redeemed. We see all these great theologies, the theology of offering ourselves, or the idea of surrender. Are you surrendered to God? To really, truly say, no matter what, small, big, great, intense, minuscule, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to look at his word and I'm going to do what he asks me to do. Even if at times it may make me feel uncomfortable. In this time of of COVID and all these things happening, we're still called to evangelize. We're still called to witness 
We're still called to pray. We're still called to worship. We need to be about those things. We need to be about serving our high priest. The high priest gives the orders. We follow the ways. It's an issue of surrender. I think of this individual. His name was Judson. I can't remember the W. Van uh, Van Deventer. He uh, grew up in Michigan. He went to Hillsdale College, became a, a music teacher. He was an artist. Wasn't making a lot of money, but he had become very successful and very proficient. In fact, he taught in uh, Sharon, Pennsylvania for most of his career in the public school system back in the late 1800s. And he uh, was a teacher. He learned 13 different instruments, became very well-known, became very active in his church. And he loved doing all these different facets, interacting with individuals, and he had great ministry opportunities. And he talks about, in, in the stories about him that are talked about, that he was an individual who you would have looked and said, active in church, loved doing what he was doing, loved his life, and yet he struggled internally. He struggled with the fact that he did not feel he was allowing God, allowing Jesus Christ to set his agenda. He talks about that he did what he wanted to do. He wanted to be the musician. He wanted to be the painter. He wanted to be the teacher. And he knew that there was something else that God wanted him to do. So every once in a while, he would, to, to appease his conscience, he would take evangelistic meetings. He said that he would go out and he would, he would preach and he would play his instruments and he would feel really good and then he'd go back to doing what he wanted to do. And he said that he would, he would give some of his time and his ways to God. And he, he came to a point in his life where he's like, I'm just battling all the time because I want to do this, but I know what God wants me to do. And so he penned uh, the words to a poem and he said that this was his, his, his words of dedication of his life to God. You know, you know the words. You've sung them. You've sung them probably many times. And if you're like me, when we sing it, it's an older hymn. So maybe you check out at times. You're like, oh, I've sung this song thousands of times. But he had the heart of a Levite that we're supposed to be having. He penned the words that said, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence I'll daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all to Jesus, my high priest, the one who's redeemed me. I surrender. I surrender all. What are you holding back from God? Surrender it to him. What have been my excuses or your excuses for not serving God? Surrender the excuses to him. What are, the, what are the vices, the sins, the addictions you're struggling? Give them to God. Get help. Go. But give them to God. Surrender them to him. Let us be individuals who, like the Levites, allow the high priest, allow God, allow Jesus Christ to dictate our ways. Let's surrender to him. God, I pray that you would help us today to surrender our all to you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.